Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Beautiful. Thanks, 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 thanks. So what we've done since Meryl and I came back from sabbatical is just hover in these few verses. They are called the Common Christie, the Anthem of Christ. Um, and uh, it's argued that Paul didn't write this because of the, the fluidity, the ease of the Greek. It was suggested it might have been an anthem that they sang in the early church, which is a great picture of what their music, or at least their lyrics, sounded like. And uh, we looked at three things. If you can go back to that previous slide, please. We looked first, we, three, two weeks ago, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset. That word is fronia, which means a, a mindset or an attitude or a worldview. And my thesis was that with Christ, this passage particularly, Tim Mackey from Bible Project calls it the center of gravity of the book. In other words, everything spins around it, a little bit like the sun and the planets. But that word up there, same mindset, refers to us in ever increasing surgery. Remember the, the analogy I used from the Netflix show, um, The Surgeon's Cut, where the patient is awake while the surgeon removes the tumor from his brain. It was remarkable. I get all skittish with medical things, but I could not but be mesmerized by this, this artist at work removing the, the tumor. And, and my thesis is that's what happens to us. We come to Christ and we expect or anticipate that things will be kind of groovy. And then we find out that God actually puts us under the surgeon's knife. And he cuts a section from our, from our skull to access our brain so that he can change us into his mindset. It's brutal, it's painful, it's disappointing, but the benefit afterwards far outweighs the trauma in the short term. The second thing we did was we spent some time in verse 7 by the very nature of a servant being of human likeness. And uh, I just wanted to drill down on that a little bit. Remember Matt Redmond's song, He Knows, Meryl? He Knows What Living Is. Essentially, he understands all the stresses and the traumas and the anxieties and the pressures that you and I feel. We do not come to a Savior who cannot understand whatever we are facing. He himself has faced that. It's a magnificent passage. And then flipping to the last few verses, I want to just hover on those tonight that God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That to me isn't a dogmatic statement of judgment. It's this invitation to a global eternal partnership with Christ where we bow our knee to engage in relation. But like um, Meryl and I have had the conversation, did I bow my knee when I asked her to marry me? Of course I did. I remember it clearly. She not so much. We were in a park 
and uh, we were kids and I was about to go to the army and uh, the kind of conversation was, let's get married, why not? And it was about as romantic as that. I would love a redo on that one, by the way, but 43 years later, I don't think I will get one. But it's that same idea of humility and respect and affection and love. I bow my knee in acknowledgement of who you are. And then every tongue, the great wonder of eternity with Christ, hearing the accents mingle in eternity. So the three big ideas that I want to just explore with us tonight, and that is to go back to how the community was planted. Firstly, does God speak? The second is this particular verse, which is um, how does my life have meaning in the context of that? And I'll try to be as quick as I can to gallop through. And then the third is fashioning my life around one thing, one thing. So can I hear his voice? Go with me, if you don't mind, to Acts chapter 16. Those of you who've been here all summer will know the passage well. Those of you who weren't. I'm going to help you. In Acts chapter 16, Paul is desperate to move on. He, uh, he's mobile, he's on the run. If you don't know the Pauline story, he gets, comes into a radical encounter with Jesus and spends the rest of his life knowing that suffering, persecution and pain would follow him. In spite of that, his trajectory is a life of obedience. And he gets to a particular place. I read Acts chapter 16 and verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit. It's an incredible thing. Skip. uh, Zeitlik, who leads the Calvary Chapel in Albuquerque. He says God's no's are important as God's goes. And this is a moment of God's goes. You know, sometimes in our quest to be obedient to Jesus, we can be paralyzed by indecision. Should I, shouldn't I? Must I, mustn't I? Could I, couldn't I? This is a fabulous moment where Paul, we read here, was kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching. So he he isn't stunned into paralysis. God says no puts his hand on Paul's chest in a manner of speaking. He says, no, I don't want you to go there. And he says, well, if God doesn't want me to go there, God wants me to go there. So he tries again. And he says, when they came to the province, to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia. They weren't paralyzed. They weren't lulled into passivity. They just kept moving. And part of the wonder of a life of faith is that we just keep moving. But one night, Paul has a vision. The vision is of a Macedonian man standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we, Luke has joined him by then the doctor, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel there. One of the most important things, dear friends, is to learn to hear God's voice. And this passage is one of 10 different ways that we can hear the voice of God. How many of you remember this being read to you as a kid? Are you my mother? Well, I read it to my kids, now my grandkids. And I will wax lyrical around this great philosophy. A mother bird sat on her egg. The egg jumped. Uh Uh-oh, 
said the mother bird. My baby will be there. He will want to eat, she said. I must get something for my baby bird to eat, she said, and I will be back. So away she went. The egg jumped and jumped and jumped again and out came a baby bird. Where is my mother? He said. He looked for her. He looked up. Don't you love being a grandpa? Well, well, I do. And he did not see her. He looked down and he did not see her. And I will go and look for her. So away he went. Tumbles down the tree. Down, down, down the tree. He went. Down, down, down. It was a long way down. The baby bird could not fly. He could not fly, but he could walk. Now I will go and find my mother, he said. He did not know what his mother looked like. He went right by her. He did not see her. He came to a kitten. Are you my mother? He said to the kitten. The kitten looked and looked. He did not say a thing. The kitten was not his mother, so he moved on. And when he came to a hen, he said, are you my mother? He said to the hen. Oh, no, said the hen. The kitten was not his mother. The hen was not his mother. So the baby bird went on. I have to find my mother, he said, but where, where is she? Where could she be? Then he came to a dog, are you my mother? He said to the dog, and the dog just stand there and looked at him. It's a southern dog. <laughs> I'm not your mother. Well, my version of a southern dog. It's like a South African southern dog. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm a dog, said the dog. The kitten was not his mother, the hen was not his mother, the dog was not his mother, so the baby bird went on and he came to a cow. I should have a Minnesota accent, but, but I, I don't. Are you my mother, he said to the cow. How moo can I be your moo mother? I am a cow. The kitten and the hen were not his mother, the dog and the cow were not his mother. Did he have a mother? Oh, I do have a mother said the baby bird. I know I did. I know I did. I have to find her. I will. I will. Now the baby bird did not walk. He ran. He was desperate. Then he saw a car, an old beaten up, trashy car. Could that old thing be my mother? No, it could not. The baby bird did not stop. He ran on and on. And then he looked away and way down. He saw a boat. There she is. There she is. There's my mother. He called to the boat, but the boat did not stop and the boat went on and he looked way, way up and he saw a big plane. Well, that must be my mother. Here I am, mama. Here I am, little old me. But the plane did not stop. The plane went on. Just then the baby bird saw a big thing. This must be my mother. There is my mother, he said as he ran across. Mother, mother, here I am, your mother. He said to the big thing, and this is my favorite port, but the, but the big thing said, Snort. Oh, you're not my mother, said the baby. You're a snort. I have to get out of here. The baby bird could not get away. The snort went up and it went away, way up and up and up went the baby bird. And, and now where is the snort going? Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. What is the snort going to do to me? Get out, get me out of here. And then the snort came to a stop. Where am I? Said the baby bird. I want to go home. Said my little grandson. I want my mama. Or actually, Amma. And then something happened. The snort put the baby bird right back in the tree and the baby bird was home. And, and then the mother bird came back to the tree. Do you know who I am? She said to her baby. 
Oh, yes, I know who you are. I said, the baby bird, you're not a kitten, you're not a hen, you're not a dog, you're not a cow, you're not a boat, you're not a plane or a snort, you are a bird. You are my mother. Why did I read that? Well, partly because I enjoy being a grandpa, but partly because there was a perseverance amongst in this little baby bird because he knew there was a voice he would recognize. All too often our Christianity is a cycle of moral improvement, hoping that somehow we will cycle around next time being a better version of me. But actually the true gift in this passage and in this story is that God does speak to us. I've written out and we'll look at it next week as we dive into the book of Acts. But I've laid out 10, is it up there? Have you guys got the, uh, there we go, thank you. These are the ways in which we hear God. I, I never heard the audible voice of God, but I have friends who have. There's the inner audible voice. When you hear God speak, it's on the inside. You know it's Him. Angels appear. Scripture, when uh, the Scripture becomes alive and, 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 and opens up something that God wants to say to us. The collaboration with leaders. There's prophecy. I'm nervous of prophecy, but I believe in prophecy. Prophecy by its very nature is a moment in time. Isn't it amazing? Paul had a vision. And in the vision, he saw a man from Macedonia begging him to come. He goes to Macedonia and he meets a woman from Lystra. And I'm sure he was more than partially confused. Really? Because what happens is we construct literalism around our prophecy. Oh, well, that's obviously what it means. Well, just pause for a moment. Let it percolate a little bit like uh, uh, a lady having a baby. Just let it percolate. Let it just hover there because the true truth will come out. What is interesting in Act 27, it says that Aristarchus, the man from Macedonia, joined us. It took 11 chapters for the man from Macedonia to join them. But it was enough of a trigger to get them going. I see I didn't put vision and dreams in there, but that's fine. Seems good to us in the Holy Spirit, peace, wisdom, where we weigh it all up, prayerfully consider it with others. My dear friends, are you my mother? The ability to hear and recognize the voice of God in my heart of hearts is arguably one of the first and great lessons that we learn upon our redemption. God just loves speaking to us. One of the joys for us in our sabbatical was the time we had unrushed time particularly in the last month when we were in Mauritius and we just sat on the beach, watched the sun come up with our Bibles and our journals and we just wrote. And God was able to minister so deeply to us because it's uncluttered, uncomplicated times that opens our hearts up for God to speak. So how did this first European church start? It started because God said no. A second time, no. And then a third time, go west, boy. Come on, I need you to go west. I don't need you to go where you thought you were going to go. I don't need you to go where you want to go. I need you to go where I need you to go. In chatting to Callie's grandparents this evening, I am extremely curious about all of you and the future that God has for you. I'm so interested in lives of obedience that right now set the stage for a future extraordinaire. But it's getting these things right. Are you my mother? Am I sure I've heard you? You're not the snort. But when my mother speaks, oh, I know 
who she is. It always intrigued me. The kids would play in the park and Meryl would suddenly fly out. We'd talking, chatting, whatever. And she would suddenly, where are you going? And she said, Nas or Dana or T. They, they, they're crying. And I'm like, there's a hundred kids here. I mean, how do you know our kid is crying? And she looks at me in disbelief like, don't you know? Well, that's why this book is, are you my mother, not are you my father? Because we're a little late in the game sometimes. Don't be discouraged by God's delayed response. Don't be worn out by God's weights or God's knows because he loves you and cares for you. And the great mystery is he knows what is down the road for you. You know, I love Jesus. When I was a young man, I meant to say this in my introduction, so it's kind of out of place here. When I was your age, starting out on this journey of faith, I I loved reading about Jesus as uh, the warrior. You know, when uh, the heavens are rent asunder, as the old hymn writers used to say, and Jesus came on his steed and his sword in his mouth and he comes in with the angels and gathers. Oh, I love that. I love Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the African inside of me feels the inner shudder of when that male lion roars and the mane is big and, and he roars and the whole, it feels like all of nature stands on tippy toes. The lion has roared. Oh, I love that Jesus also. I loved it a little less, but that Jesus who's the judge. Because the idealist in me just wanted that to happen, but not to me, but to others. But but the older I've got, the more I've been amazed by the beauty and wonder of his kindness. Don't you marvel at his kindness? He's walking. The crowd is rampant. If you've been to the Middle East, it's like um, Joshua Tree on steroids. It's hot. It's dusty. It's overwhelming. There's no air conditioning. They weren't in homes. They were in the outdoors. I'm sure they were all more than a tad smelly. And the people are hustling and bustling. And then he feels something. It's a tug on his garment, a touch that in the hustle and bustle surely just feels like everything else. But he stops. Everyone looks around. Why is he stopping? Who touched me is the question he asked. Feeling like judgment is about to come on her, a woman puts up her hand and walks up to him and she says, it is I, Rabbi. The Bible tells us she had an issue of blood for 12 years. She bled insistently. I do not know, nor can I even try to understand what that must have felt like in those days with the limited resources available. I knew that from the old covenant, if a lady bled, she couldn't be in the humdrum of community life. So not only was she viewed as unclean, she shouldn't have been there. And Jesus looks at her with such incredible Kindness. I'm mesmerized by that kindness. When she's broken every tradition and protocol and she reaches out and touches him as an unclean person. The older I get, the more mesmerized I am by his kindness towards me, towards my family, to you. I'm mesmerized by his tenderness he walks into a very public place the argument is by some theologians that the woman was naked because she'd been caught in the very act of adultery while it was happening they found her 
as they were about to stone her so there was no sense of protect her dignity, it was expose the adulterer. High probability that she is lying in the dust. Shame covered her, guilt covered her, the glare and stare of men who probably were with lustful thoughts of their own as they looked upon her. And Jesus gets down on his haunches and the great mystery of the ages is what did he write in the sand? But when she looked in his eyes, it was not the eyes of the judge or the lion of the tribe of Judah or the great returning king on his steed. It was the tender touch of a redeeming Jesus. As man after man peeled off until eventually it was just them. Who are you? Where are your accusers? They're not here, my Lord. Well, then neither do I accuse you. There's something remarkable about his kindness. There's something remarkable about his tenderness. There's something remarkable about his healing. Again, outside of our cultural uh, world where these lepers come. And and, uh, again, reading some of the great Catholic saints who've gone in and lived with lepers knowing they'll probably die of leprosy and many of them did. But he touched them. Surely, as a human being, fully human, surely he would have been repulsed by their deformities and the sheer outward nature of their disease. But he reached out and he touched them. My guess is he's held his hand there and they must have wept. Why are you doing this. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Jesus that I've grown to fallen in love with in the second half of my life. He's still the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's still the raging warrior who will return and gather those to himself. He is still the judge, but there is something about Jesus that I never understood. I was reading my devotions this week that he was gentle and humble. And I said, Jesus, I don't know you that way. Would you teach me? Will you show me this because it's not here and it's not here? I'm not a gentle man. Sorry, there are lots of personal stories. I apologize. I'm not a gentle man. For various reasons that aren't that important right now. But but I said, I I want to be like you. Can you teach me how to be gentle? I don't know it. I don't see it. And I don't think I would have admired it in you. Isn't that amazing? On the cross as he was dying, the death of an executioner torturer. I mean, he was dying there because of that. And he hangs there, and and no movie can offer the trauma of dying like that way. But he looks up, and he sees his mom. He was 33. Let's say she was 16 when he gave birth. Let's put her at 40. What is that? Okay. She's young. Don't be Joseph is. And in that moment of dastardly trauma and pain, he looks at John, his buddy, and he says, will you look after my mom? 
Will you take care of her? You're like, Jesus, I mean, all of this happening and you're about to shout out, God, why are you forsaking me? And in that moment, hanging on what will be your death space, you look at your mom and say, will you look after her? I, I don't know that Jesus well enough. And, and I suspect maybe if you've done the journey I have, you similarly feel the misplaced limitations of your understanding of Jesus. Back to the passage. Are you my mother? Secondly, this passage is particularly beautiful for two reasons very quickly, and I'll move on quickly. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. It's beautiful because it gives us the sense of how the Father elevates the name of Jesus above every other name. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Can I say two things quickly? The first is this. I'm often asked, Chris, what about those who've never heard the name of Jesus? You know, if you read the story of Abraham, that's easy to answer. He was a pilgrim, a sojourner, a man of tents. Wherever he tented, he built an altar. He didn't know Yahweh. He didn't know Elohim. But he knew there was a personal God that he wanted to worship. So as he put up his tent, he built an answer. And God said, he's a righteous man. There are many, many righteous people in heaven with us one day, whatever that looks like. Not because they've heard the name of Jesus, but because they too have anticipated an eternal, intellectual, intelligent one, a creator, a redeemer, a savior. And I think we're going to meet them from Nepal, India, Africa. I never knew him. But somehow I knew there was a divine, intimate, personal God and I bowed my knee and I built my tent and I built my altar and I worshipped him. But the second thing I want to say about this particular passage is do you understand the invitation that comes with every knee, every tongue? You can see I was going to use that verse, but time is not my friend. When we embrace the privilege of a journey of taking Jesus into the dark and broken places of our world, it gives us meaning to our lives. Many Christians want to live, if I can say this, with this is my Jesus world. It's about songs and food and breaking of bread. And then my life just carries on like normal. What if we bring those two together? What was it that was so mysterious about E. Stanley Jones or Mother Teresa or who was in Hong Kong, love? who worked with the addicts. I can't remember her name now. Pardon? No, no, it was, uh, she was there in the 90s still. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's where we bring together this intimacy of Christian worship with the fact that we have a reason to live 
beyond simply a life of career and steps to success. It's an invitation to live a life way more meaningful and deeper than that. All right, should I do the third point? You know what, I'm going to stop. Because sometimes you want to get through all your clever notes and then you miss a moment. We're going to come to communion in a moment. Dana's going to lead us. But I lingered tonight. I found myself unexpectedly lingering tonight around two things. One, are you my mother? Because I felt some of you have not heard his voice for a long, long time. I was preparing this afternoon, just lying on the couch, mulling over, and I remembered the story. And I couldn't find it at first. And it was like there was an urgency, you've got to find the book, which I did eventually. But I feel like God wants to restore, kind of almost give you hearing aids to be able to hear Him and hear Him clearly. And I want to suggest as we come to communion that you posture yourself as Stu took us to that song of sweet surrender. God, I want to surrender myself because I want to hear you, number one. And then number two, an invitation to that part of Christ you just don't know. That part of Jesus that you've always lived under the shame and guilt feeling God, uh, Jesus the judge, peering at you when actually he is extending a tender hand of kind redemption. What if tonight as we come to this space, Jesus offers a picture of himself, almost like he brings out a photo album of himself. And he says, you know these pictures, this is, these are the pictures you know of me, but these ones are the ones you don't. And I want to invite you into that space. Dana?